Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. grandmother's cousin, my grandmother was born in 1894 and uh, passed away in 1992 at the age of almost 98. But she was a young woman during the First World War and her cousin volunteered to be a nurse in the United States Army. Uh, and she was sent for special training to Kansas. And in there, there was a whole school of people that wanted to be army nurses, and she was put in a room with a young woman from somewhere in the Midwest, and the young woman confessed to her that when my grandmother's cousin told that she was Jewish, the other woman, the young woman, was so excited, she said, this is the first time I've ever been sleeping in the same room with an Oriental. Uh, and to us, that seems strange, but upon... <coughs> Um, consideration, uh, you realize, let's say we take the cutoff date of 1000 BC, maybe even before, we don't know about the biblical timeline exactly, but if we take 1000 BC until zero of the common era, all the Jews were living in the Middle East. If we go fast forward another 1,000 years to the year 1,000, almost all of the Jews in the world are living in the Middle East and North Africa in the Mediterranean basin. Some few intrepid folks around the year 800 crossed from northern Italy into uh, France and Germany, and they identified that what we call Germany was the biblical land of Ashkenaz. And these fellows became known as Ashkenazim, okay? Ashkenazic Jews. After some couple of hundred years and several crusades later, the people from that area felt that there were greener pastures in Eastern Europe. And the Polish kings invited them because they knew that the Jews were good entrepreneurs. And a lot of Jews from Germany, Ashkenaz, moved to Poland. And they continued to be called Ashkenazic Jews. And that's how all of the Jews in Eastern Europe became Ashkenazic Jews. At the same time, however, most of the Jews were still living in North Africa and the Middle East under Muslim uh, land. Some were in more far-flung places, sort of out of contact with Ethiopia, India. And some of those Jews crossed with the Muslim armies over the Straits of Gibraltar 
in the year, I think, 717 or something. I was young at the time, so I don't recall exactly. And that the whole uh, Iberian Peninsula became a Muslim uh, rule, and the Jews flourished there. And they identified the Iberian Peninsula as the biblical land of Sepharad. So they were called Sepharadim, or Sephardic Jews. After 1492, the so Jews from Spain split up into two groups. Some of them f adopted Christianity under pressure and remained there as conversos. Some of them later coming out from there to found the Sephardic community in Amsterdam and later Great Britain, later in the Caribbean, the first Jews of New York, which was then New Amsterdam, came on a boat from Brazil, Recife, which was a, a, belonged to Holland and was conquered by the Portuguese. When the Portuguese came, the Jews realized they had nothing more to do there, so they went to another Dutch colony, which was New Amsterdam, and they founded uh, a Sephardic congregation there. But most of the Jews from Sepharad who didn't convert, where did they go? They went to Muslim countries, to North Africa, and also to the Middle East where the Ottoman Empire was very uh, res nicely receiving them. And so now we have, they're all called Sephardic Jews, although they're now not living in Sepharad, just like the Ashkenazic Jews are not living in Ashkenaz, but these became the names for two different populations of Jews whose ancestors came from those lands. And demographers have debates about this, but apparently until the year 1500 and something, the majority of Jews in the world were all living not in Europe. So they really were Orientals. It's only later in the 16th, 17th, 18th, and especially 19th century that the Jews in Eastern Europe had a population explosion, many of them coming also to live in North America. And now, there was created a relatively modern phenomenon in Jewish history that most of the Jews were Europeans. But there's good reason to think that historically we're Orientals. There was good reason also for Jews in the United States. There's an interesting book, How Jews Became White Folks, right? It was a good reason for Jews in the United States, given as everybody in the United States is very hyped up about race. You're not allowed to ask in the census about what religion are you, chas v'chalila, that's forbidden. But what race are you? Everybody has to say what race you belong. And for various reasons, uh, people who define themselves as white, their situation in the United States was much better, some say is much better, and therefore it was good for the Jews who basically came from Europe uh, to hear most of them, and they looked sort of whitish, uh, not to be Orientals, but rather white folks, and uh, think of themselves as Europeans. And fast forward, now people in the Middle East and elsewhere are claiming, well, what is Zionism? It's Europeans coming 
just like we're basically Orientals. We were Orientals for thousands of years. Under this framework, where is the Oriental Jewish heritage and cultural tradition, and what does it have to say? Well, if we look in ancient times, the Bible is all written by Orientals. The Talmud, the Mishnah, everybody is Oriental, whether in the land of Israel, the Mishnah was written in the year, about the year 200, uh, or in Babylon and Iraq, where the Talmud was written, Later on, the Gaonic period, where the great scholars of Mesopotamia led the world Jewish culture, was all in the Middle East. So in the middle, okay, and all great Jewish philosophers, Jewish philosophy was invented by people from the Middle East and Muslim countries, okay, Maimonides, who was living in Egypt. He was a physician to the king of uh, uh, Egypt, and uh, he also wrote on the side what are probably the greatest classic works of Halakha, Mishneh Torah, Jewish philosophy, Guide of the Perplexed, and so on. But once you get to about the year 15, 1600, for some reason in most courses on Jewish culture, Jewish history, Jewish religion, these people disappear, and you begin to hear only about Europeans what happened in Poland, what happened in Lithuania, what happened in Germany, what happened to the Jews of France after the revolution, what, or the Jews in America, just what was happening at that time in Iraq, Syria, Egypt, Morocco, Turkey, uh, the Balkans were all under Ottoman control until the end of the 19th century. What were all those Jews doing? Well, the truth is that we don't know, or people don't know, enough about that. One thing that we do know, however, is that in, you look at the history of modern European Jews, which had tremendous creativity, but you also see that it had a tremendous amount of schisms, okay? In 1750, a great rabbi called Israel Baal Shem Tov invented the Hasidic movement. He, was, he and his followers were declared to be pagans, idol worshipers, and heretics by the people who opposed that, who are called misnagdim, because the hitnaged in Hebrew means to oppose. So we had the Hasidim and the misnagdim, none of whom were reform, but they were at each other's throats. And even today in Israel, the ultra-Orthodox community is broken up between the Hasidim and a misnagdim, who could barely get along with each other except to oppose the secular rest of the Israelis. Um, and then, uh, after 1750, you go about 50, 60 years forward, you get the reform movement. The people that founded the reform movement, why did they found the reform movement? They said the young people aren't coming to the synagogue. They're not interested. They come there. The, they don't understand what's going on. The sermons are in Yiddish. The prayers are in Hebrew. They don't understand those languages. And what should we do? We should have some of the prayers in the vernacular. And we should have the sermon in the vernacular. And they found sources within halakha that said you could do that. But the other rabbis who opposed that and who later became orthodox, who were called orthodox, said you can't do that. And all of the halachic ways that you want to do these changes, 
you can't do that, and you're really wolves in sheep's clothing. We know that you could care less about halacha, and you're only trying to ruin everything. And they coined the phrase, hachadash asur min ha-Torah. If it's new, it's forbidden. <laughs> and after some time, the early reform who tried to go this way, that way, within the halachic framework, but every time they were told you can't do that, they said, well, we're going to give up halacha. Okay. And the Orthodox rabbi said, aha, we knew it. Uh, but it wasn't clear that it had to reach that, but that's where it reached. And now we have two movements that are not chassidim or not misnadim at each other's throats. And then uh, in Europe, there became a lot of Jews who said, well, we're Jewish, but we're not religiously Jewish. There's something called the Jewish nation. For instance, its, natural, its national language is Yiddish. And we're in favor of social justice. And we, they founded a big party called the Bund. Right? And the Bund uh, was completely secular, uh, socialist slash almost communist, uh, very strong politically in Poland, and uh, very vigorous until the Second World War. At other time, people who were living there said, well, we are secular but we're not socialist, and we don't think that the national language of the Jews is Yiddish. And we think that there should be a Jewish nation. And given that the Bulgarians are now having a Bulgarian nation state, and the uh, Hungarians are trying to get a nation state, and the Italians are trying to get a nation state, uh, we should also have a nation state in our own ancestral homeland, which is the land of Israel, and they were the Zionists. And they didn't like the reform, and the reform didn't like them. And they didn't like the ultra-Orthodox who said that they were heretics, and the ultra-Orthodox didn't like them. And then they were fighting with each other some more. And OK, so you could go through the whole history of modern European Jerusalem, and you see a lot of schisms, which brings about what we have today in the United States denominations, OK, until Modern times, there was no denominations to speak of. Now, now, does that mean that everybody was really seriously religious? Not necessarily so. There were probably a lot of people cutting a lot of corners. If you follow the halachic literature, you see rabbis are dealing with a lot of problematic people. Um, but that being said, uh, okay. so in modern times, in Muslim countries, these schisms weren't created. And one of the reasons for that is that the rabbis worked very hard not to push people out. Okay? Uh, you look like the famous musical of Tuvia, the milkman, and you see that one of his sons or his daughter becomes a communist, right? And then they sit shiva, or they marry out, they sit shiva, the person is like dead. Okay, but that's not gonna happen in the Sephardic culture and families because that's not the tone that the rabbis set or wanted to set. Very recently, in historic terms, around 18, 
1983 was created a group of Sephardic ultra-Orthodox, which never existed in any Sephardic country, which became the Shas party in Israel, which now says that they're speaking in the name of the Sephardic tradition, but what's really happening is that a lot of Sephardic young men went to ultra-Orthodox yeshivas and became ultra-Orthodox, and they speak Hebrew with a het and an ein, and they like a lot of Oriental foods and so on, and they sing Oriental tunes, but their mentality is basically right-wing Orthodox. Okay, but so now I want to go with you through some texts that were written by Sephardic rabbis uh, in recent centuries and uh, see how they, uh, some of them relate to certain uh, issues um, of inclusiveness, and the first one is about women. Uh, by the way, it says questions and answers at the end, but from my part, if anybody has any question or issue that they want to raise while we're talking, feel free to do that, okay? So that, that's fine. Um, Rabbi Yisrael Yaakov al-Ghazi, who died in 1756, when he passed away, he was the chief rabbi of Jerusalem. Uh, earlier in his life, he was born and grown up in Turkey, what's now Turkey, in the city of Izmir, which was a big, important city and had a lot of scholars and uh, very knowledgeable people. And later, about 50 years later, uh, or 40 years later, his son, Yom Tov al-Ghazi became also the chief rabbi of Jerusalem, and his son published a work in Jerusalem in 1843 in which he discussed in a rather rambling way a lot of issues, and at a certain point he says, you know what, here is how my father of blessed memory used to explain the biblical chapter of Eshet Chayel, Woman of Valor. Now, traditionally, this is, a, this is really a chapter from the book of Proverbs, uh, according to the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, all the psukim go according to the Hebrew alphabet. And uh, in many traditional homes, this is uh, recited or sung by the husband in honor of the wife on the Friday evening um, um, table. Um, so among other things, it says in uh, the Bible, she... Uh, Ideal woman is clothed in strength and glory and smiles when contemplating the last day. She opens her mouth in wisdom and instruction of grace is on her tongue and uh, her children and her husband uh, say how wonderful she is and so on. And here is how Rabbi Israel Yaakov Ghazi says, this is what is meant by the verse. She is clothed in strength and glory. She clothed herself in tefillin and talit that are called strength and glory. Now, he has different citations from Midrashic sources why uh, strength, oz, is tefillin, and a talit is glory. And so if he says that this is what the Eshet Chayel, the ideal woman, did, right, he can't then turn around and say, no, that's terrible. Women shouldn't be doing that. So obviously, he is interpreting this verse, which is, that's not the plain meaning of the verse, but he's interpreting it as that it's good that women should do that, which has been hotly debated in modern times, as you know, but here he feels no problem about saying that. And scripture also testifies about her that she smiles when contemplating the last day, meaning her reward, her reward from God in the last day, the world to come, is assured for women 
according to traditional halacha, are not obligated to put on talit and tefillin. There's a whole set of mitzvot which women are not obligated to do, but they may do if they so choose. And they get, God likes that. They get reward from God, according to rabbinic sources, for performing these mitzvot, even if they're not obligated. In addition, her wisdom sustained her, which is his right, she opened her mouth with wisdom in that she did not go and ask the rabbis if she should put on tefillin or not. Rather, she herself opened her mouth in wisdom and instruction of grace was on her tongue. That is, she performed the time-bound commandments that she was not obligated to perform on her own initiative decision and she lived by her own decision. Okay, so what is the chief rabbi of Jerusalem saying? He says, look, there's this woman. She's a learned woman. She knows that if she would observe these commandments, she would be religiously more fulfilled and God would appreciate that. But she also knows that if she now went and asked the rabbis, they would say, so what does she do? She's a wise woman. She doesn't ask. She decides on her own and takes responsibility for her own life. And when you come to think of it, in many cases, okay, if uh, I'm not talking about Rav Shmuley, but thinking about some other rabbis, if somebody comes and asks them a question, should I do this, should I not do that, what do you advise? The rabbi, when making this decision, would not take into account only and specifically the benefits or lack of such to the individual that's asking, they would be thinking about what's the communal policy? What would be best for the community? They would probably also be thinking, if I said X, what would other rabbis think about me? <laughs> um, so the rabbis would have a lot of considerations, would end up rendering a decision that is not necessarily the best decision for this individual because they are having to make a policy decision. But if the individual is making the decision on their own after reading through the options and choosing what they see is the best option for them within the tradition, then they don't have to take into account all of these policies. They're doing what is, at the bottom line, good for them. Okay, so that's what this woman was doing. And the chief rabbi of Jerusalem is saying, good for her. She's an ancient chayel. She's a woman of valor. She knows. She did the research. She's making a decision. She would ask me, maybe I would have to say something else. But, as it were from the eyes of God, that's a good move. Good for her. Yes. He who is commanded to perform, etc., is greater than someone not commanded, where our common thought would be the exact Right. Right. That's a good question. You would think it's, it's counterintuitive, right? Yes. Okay. So, first of all, that's a good question. The traditional answer to that is that let's say somebody believes that they have to get up every morning and put on filling and they feel that they're commanded to do that. 
but they're very tired. They went to sleep late last night, and they have a meeting early in the morning, and they figure, why should I now lose another 15 minutes of sleep and get up and get to the burnt tired? So I'm going to pass on that. Just a minute. No, I can't do that because I was commanded. So the person has to overcome their desire to cut corners and stick with what? Because they're commanded. However, if somebody's not commanded and they want to now not do it, day on, day off, yes, no, once a week, there's no skin off anybody's back. Okay, so the first person under this reading has a greater sense of obligation as they're gonna stick with it more and therefore they are gonna get more points. Whereas the second person could do it, yes, nah, this, this. So it's, uh, th that's the reasoning behind why this is described. Okay, so now obviously, it's not the case that all of the women in Jerusalem in the year 1750 were putting on talit and tefillin. Okay, when I was working on, I wrote an article about this, and uh, when I was working on this text, and then I was discussing with some people, they said, well, was there any person in Jerusalem who was actually doing that? And I checked that out, and I found two things. First of all, it might be, yes, there was a certain great Moroccan Kabbalist, Hayim ben Attar, who in 1745 or something moved from Morocco to Jerusalem, and his wife was reported later on to have been putting on talit and tefillin. However, I also said that in itself, that there was such a woman, would not necessarily call for this type of attitude, because I later found, I read a different article by somebody else, that in medieval Europe, there were women who were putting on talit. And the rabbi said, those chutzpatik women, what are they doing? That just shows how proud and self-assertive they are. And women have to stop doing that. Okay, so the fact that there was a woman doing that doesn't mean what's the response of the rabbi is going to be. Uh, so uh, this rabbi, maybe he did see this woman from, came from Morocco, married to this great rabbi doing this, but that was not a sufficient condition for him to be in favor of it. So he was in favor here of being inclusive and positive to people who were acting in ways that were not the normal way of behavior that mainstream people were behaving, and he was even finding a way to say good things about that. Okay, so that's case uh, number one. Uh, we'll now go to case number two, non-observant Jews. Okay, everybody knows, and it's debated by scholars when this happened in the 1700s or the 1800s that Jews initially in Europe, Italy, and Germany began to be less, be less observant of many matters of traditional halakha, okay? And there's all books about that were written by scholars about this. And 
As we noted, then there became schisms between them and the more traditional, more religious rabbis. Many people have the impression that the Jews from Oriental, from Muslim countries, they were always like very religiously traditional, and then they came to Israel, they came to the United States, or France, and it was a big shock for them to see that there were some Jews who weren't really so observant. But historically, that's not really the case. Also in the Middle East and also in North Africa, there were increasingly over the course of the 19th century uh, quite a few Jews who were not religiously observant. Um, but nevertheless, they remained part of the Jewish community, and the Jewish community didn't try to discipline them or push them out. And here we see one way of, of rationale of that. Rabbi Joseph Massas, uh, born in Morocco in 1892, later became the rabbi of a town in Algeria. Algeria was at that time officially part and parcel of France, although it was they had the whole Mediterranean in the middle. But France conquered Algeria in 1830. And just like in the United States, you have states of the United States that are not geographically contiguous, right? Uh, Hawaii, Alaska. But they're part of the United States. Puerto Rico is, wants to be a state. <laughs> OK, but France regarded Algeria similarly. It was officially part of France. Um, except with a small, they didn't grant citizenship to the original indigenous inhabitants who were mostly Muslim. But the Jews of France lobbied very much that France should give French citizenship to the Jews of Algeria, who are mamash completely not European at all. <laughs> um, and France ultimately did that in 1870. And the Jews of Algeria, unlike the Muslims of Algeria, became complete citizens of France. And there was no Jewish schools in France. There was no Jewish schools in Algeria. They all went to public schools. And they became basically French, very much secularized compared to all the other Jews in North Africa. And, um, also, Jews in other North African countries were moving in that direction. And here in 1939, a rabbi from the Moroccan city of Port Leoté writes to Rabbi Joseph Massas, who is considered an important rabbinic authority. He later retired and became the chief rabbi of Haifa in 1964. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Many of the Amehaaretz, the public, Jewish public, publicly desecrate the Sabbath, some in order to make a living. But there are also rich people who have been accustomed to this from their youth. However, they all believe in God, they're not atheists, and they perform philanthropic misvot, meaning they support other people, the poor, the needy, the so on and so forth, they don't observe the ritual mitzvot between man and God. So they're not what we would call religious, okay, for some reason, interestingly. Uh, I always 
ask my students in, in university in Israel, tell me something. Do you believe it's possible for somebody to be religious and a rapist? Oh, sure, there's a lot of religious rapists. They're all, prisons are full of them. Do you believe it's somebody for possible to be a thief and religious? Oh, sure. Do you believe it's possible for somebody to eat non-kosher and be religious? No, no, that's impossible. Do you believe it's somebody to publicly desecrate the Sabbath all the time and not go to synagogue, but instead travel around and make bonfires on the beach? Could that person be religious? No, that can't be. So it turns out, what is religious? It's, it has nothing to do with social justice and the mitzvot that the Torah command us between human beings, but it has to do with the relationship of ritual commandments between man and God. That's really religious, okay? And that's how the term is actually used uh, until this day, although we have a lot of the prophets in the Bible who are very unhappy about that. So here are all these people, they're not religious, and uh, you should know for the purposes of this discussion that it says in the Talmud that somebody who touches wine and they publicly desecrate the Sabbath or are worshiping foreign gods, a Jew who became a Christian uh, or who became a Hindu, or as it were, a Jew who is publicly desecrating the Sabbath, they touch kosher wine, Joops, what happens? The wine is now non-kosher. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what Mevushal is for? Well, some people say that if you have wine that's called Mevushal, meaning like it was pasteurized or something, then that doesn't apply, because that's not really like wine. Because that's not really wine. Yeah. Okay, so then a lot of people say, yeah, I have nothing to do with halakha, but if it's pasteurized, it's not really wine, because it loses a lot of the qualities that it got from the special... 90-year-old oak casks that were imported from Iceland. Okay, so uh, be that as it may, so there is this halachic position, and now Rabbi Misas is being asked if such people who are Jewish, but they are not observant of the mitzvot of Shabbat, and so on, if they touch wine, what now happens? Is it still kosher or not? And he the person that asked him the question tried to give all reasons why that rule doesn't apply to them. And he says, no, forget it. These dots, he goes through a whole discussion. He says, no, according to the law as it stands, there is no permission for the wine they touch. But then he says, just a minute. That's one rule. The rule says, if such a person touches wine, it becomes non-kosher. But there's a lot of other rules. And sometimes, in every legal system, rules can be in conflict. You can get a conflict of law. Once there's a conflict of law within the same system, you have to decide which law is now more powerful and is going to overrule the other law, okay? So one famous thing that everybody knows about in Jewish law is Shabbat. If there's somebody who is in danger, a life-endangering situation that overrules Shabbat, and you have to do anything on Shabbat in order to save that person's life. But if the person wasn't in a life-endangering situation, that wouldn't be the case. So he says, we can mend their situation, meaning to say why this wine is okay and these people are okay, on the basis of another consideration, namely, because of our many sins that prolong our exile, meaning to our great sorrow, 
The Ameharits who desecrate God's Sabbath and holidays are numerous. Most of our give and take, meaning our interaction is with them, and they are in continuous social contact with us. They enter our homes, we enter theirs, and there is not one banquet, whether mandatory or optional. Optional is just you want to have a good time. Mandatory means there's some simcha. And you're supposed to have a banquet, okay? Because Jews, when they have some good thing happen to them, they're supposed to eat, okay? So they, there's banquets that are happening left and right, and it's a not mitzvah. It's a, and it, uh, the, 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 the certain historian of the Jewish sociology is called Jacob Katz, and he writes that in traditional small Jewish villages in Eastern Europe, people didn't have to go to the movies because they were all friends and relatives of each other. So every two days, there would be a wedding ceremony, a sheva brachot, a bar mitzvah, a this, a that. And people could just go to parties all the time and feel that they were doing a mitzvah. OK, so he says, these people also have these ceremonies. And there is not one banquet, whether mandatory or optional, in which we do not sit with them. In near homes, such as Zevid Habat, which is a ceremony for a newborn girl, circumcision, redemption of the firstborn, marriages, etc. So we're all the time in interaction with these people. So if we come to forbid wine that they have touched, by even the slightest gesture, and we're all sitting around having a good time, this guy takes the wine, he wants to pick it up to give. Chaim, the Chaim. Oh, no, no, no. I'll, I'll give it out. Okay, because no, because you don't observe Shabbat. Okay, and if this, anybody would do such a thing, we would rapidly become involved in conflict and would fan the flames of controversy to the heart of the heavens by doing so. We would be causing ourselves great injury through their enmity and hatred. And it is possible that as a result, they would spurn even the few commandments that they do fulfill and totally reject everything, God forbid. Maybe now they fast on Yom Kippur. They eat matzah on Pesach. But if we have such a negative attitude towards them, they would say, what the hell, go away. We don't need you anymore. Forget it. Therefore, it is right to be lenient in this matter, even for the sake of peace alone, whose power is great. Okay, so we have one rule. Uh, such a person touches wine, it's not kosher. We have rule number two. Peace within the community is very, very important. Which one of these rules should win? He says rule number two. Peace and the need for peace and not to cause friction and hatred and enmity and schism should override this other rule which does exist but we're not going to do it in this case. And he goes into some explanation about this. And then he says, towards the end, for these reasons we are lenient and permit them, not only about the wine, in general, permit them to be called up to the Torah and to read the Haftarah, the portion from the prophets. And we count them for a minion and for all ritual matters. From our perspective, we disregard the fact that these people don't observe Sabbath. And we include them in the community in all cases that they want to be included, give them honors in the synagogue, count them for a minion. Now, just a minute, these people are desecrating the Sabbath. In some other places, the rabbis would say to them, some, a lot of places in Europe, young men, shape up, choose. You want to be part of us, 
observe the Sabbath. If not, goodbye and bad luck. Okay, so uh, he's saying no. We don't want that. We want to maintain a joint community. And our wish and intent and commitment to maintain a joint community, even with people who are not following the line in major things, is going to override other possible negative attitudes. Now, if you look uh, um, in Europe, right, uh, there are places until today, and also, by the way, in Israel, where in the cemeteries, there's a special section for Shomer Shabbos people who are observing Shabbat, and they don't want to be buried with other Jews who maybe aren't religious enough. For all eternity, they're going to be living, sleeping next to somebody who was a Shabbos desecrator? Okay, could they pray in the same shul with such a person? Could they count that person for a minion? Okay, my father uh, was a pretty devout person, uh, and he was in Hungary, in Budapest, and uh, he, in the morning, went to a certain synagogue, and he went, wanted to participate in the davening, and he got there pretty early, and they're waiting to have 10 men, so he was like number eight, came another one, came another one, there's 10, right, could they start? No, why? Because he's a satmar, Hasidic, they don't count a person who's a Zionist as part of their minion. And they could see from the way he dresses and the kind of kippah he wears that he's from Israel, he's probably a Zionist, so they didn't count him for a minion, because how could you count such a heretic for a minion? Okay, and so on, uh, all down the line. So, but here you see that the rabbi is making a conscious, intentional decision that the unity of the community and the able to be inclusive should override the other considerations uh, for these people. And what do we do about it today? Who is the we? <laughs> well, the poor, the travelers. Well, the, the truth is that uh, these are very important issues. And um, one might say, if one wanted to follow, first of all, one of the reasons that I'm bringing these texts is, uh, and I'll take this opportunity to answer you and to, we Jews today face many great challenges, okay? And our tradition is really incredibly rich. It was created over thousands of years in a vast variety of geographical, social, historical, cultural conditions. And in order to respond in the best way to current conditions, the more we can call upon from within that tradition, the more we're acquainted with it, the more we have that resources available, the more we know, the more options we have to positively deal with the issues that we have today. Okay, and so there are some people in Israel, I'm, I'm gonna get to your opinion, but there are some people in Israel who say, you know why I'm interested in this Sephardic tradition? My great-grandfather came from Iraq, and I wanna have pride in my Sephardic tradition. And other people say, well, 
my great-grandmother came from Turkey, and I want to have pride about that, so I'm going to be interested in the rabbis of Turkey. Okay, okay, but, so, but that's not my position. My position is that if your great-grandfather came from wherever, but the content of that tradition is not such a big thing, so maybe choose something else. Okay, but the reason that we can and should be interested in the Sephardi tradition is that it provides additional resources to what most people in America know about to respond to current issues. So getting back now, thank you, to your question. Once we see that this rabbi, and he's not the only one, but he's like a, a good example, is saying the unity and ability to be inclusive within the tradition is very, very important. So we should have in mind what is the maximum that we could do to be inclusive with other Jews who we don't possibly agree with necessarily on a lot of different other grounds. But does that mean, okay, I'm not talking about somebody as a rapist or a murderer, okay, and we have to be friendly to him. Maybe he should be in jail. Okay, he's in jail, maybe we should take pity on him and come to visit him and console him for his life term in jail and not cut him off that he made this great sin. But that doesn't mean that, okay, but somebody who is basically a good human being, but we have difference with them about interpretation and application of different traditional issues, how could we be most inclusive? So I recently had a thought experiment that I invented. Okay, I'm coming to an Orthodox rabbi, and I'm saying to them, let's say that I could invent a halachic justification why conversions performed by a reform rabbi are valid according to halacha. What do you think about that option? In my thought experiment, most Orthodox rabbis say we're not interested in that option. We're not interested in trying to find out why the reformer okay. Um, um, so, uh, but on this view, Rabbi Massas or somebody operating, I'm not, he's not alive anymore, so I couldn't ask him specifically, but this type of mentality, this type of orientation would try to go and say, let's extend the maximum possible credit that we could find to be positive about other people and not cut them off or say what's wrong with them, they're not good, they're not this and not that, which unfortunately is all too common uh, between denominations and also within denominations. There's the right-wing conservative, the left-wing conservative, this orthodox, that orthodox, that orthodox, that orthodox, so black now you can't see it anymore. Okay, doesn't reflect outside any light. They're very, 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 very extreme, but the 99.9% .9 of the rest of the Jewish people don't count. So the more, so that's the move, and here uh, we're gonna see another uh, source uh, from Egypt, um, which I happened, it came up in a conversation, this issue with Rav Shmuley that we had earlier today, okay? 
Um, sometime in the early Middle Ages, around the 1800s, a group of Jewish people in Iraq, which was then the cultural and probably population center of Jews in the world, known as Babel, Babylonia, Mesopotamia, that was the world center of Jewry, and the rabbis who led the great academies in Iraq at that time were called Geonim, which at that time didn't mean geniuses, it was like a president or a leader, or spiritual leader. And they, as we know from the Cairo Geniza, would all the time get questions about matters of Jewish tradition and law from around the Jewish world, throughout North Africa, Europe, uh, Afghanistan, they were Jews. Bukhara, they were Jews. Persia, they were Jews. And they were the center. And in that heart, as it were, of the rabbinic establishment came a group of Jews, and they said, that's a lot of baloney. We don't believe that God gave Moses something called the oral Torah. We believe that the written Torah was given to Moses, and the oral Torah was not given to Moses, meaning how to explain the Torah. And all the explanations that we now have are from rabbis who lived over the centuries. This one says this, this one said that, and therefore they don't have any special authority over us. And we too could make our own interpretations, and we just have to go according to the written. Now written in Hebrew is Mikra, the Bible, and they were called Karaites, because they only went by the Bible. In a certain extent, there's an analogy to reform Christianity, who said, forget about what the Pope says. Let's go back to the scriptures and read what the scriptures say, and that's how we'll be good Christians. So the Karaites, around the year 800 and 900, and they became very, very popular. And scholars think that at some point, around the year 900 or 1000, about 50% of the Jews in the world were Karaites. Um, and they, of course, had different ways of interpreting the truth. So first, it could be within the same family. I'm a rabbinite. My cousin is a Karaite. And they used to marry each other because they were all living. Over time, a gap widened between the Karaites and the rabbinites. And each side decided why the other one is not kosher. And the rabbinites, who held with the rabbinic halacha, um, said, just a minute, to get married according to Jewish law, Nothing could be easier. You really don't need a rabbi. You just need a man, a woman, two witnesses. The man gives the woman something of value. It could be a ring. It could be uh, a silk scarf, anything of value. And he says to her, by my giving you this, you are betrothed to me according to the religion of Moses and Israel. There's two witnesses. That's it. They're goodbye. They're married. You don't need a white dress. You don't need a rabbi. You don't need a chuppah. It's very easy. However, if after some time, the marriage would go on the rocks and they would want to get divorced, oh, to write a kosher divorce, a get, that's a whole, the Talmud devotes pages and pages and pages and the commentators more and more until they could know how to write a proper divorce. So obviously they say, the Karaites getting married, it's a snap. They're doing it right. But when and if they want to get divorced, it's all messed up. Their divorces don't count. So if that woman who thinks she got divorced 
Now goes and marries another Karaite man. What happens? She's really still married to the first man, and the children that they have, that's the situation of a mamzer, of a bastard who's not supposed to marry other Jews. So the, who knows how many times this happened in Karaite history. Therefore, all of the Karaites are what? Mamzerim or Safek Mamzerim. Nobody's allowed to marry them. And this situation obtained for several hundred years. Around the year 1900, the major, most of the Karaites disappeared. It became, once again, that the vast majority of Jews were rabbinites. But a significant community of Karaites continued to exist in Egypt. And they, and the rabbinite Jews, sociologically were becoming more and more friendly for a variety of reasons, including that they were both becoming less religious. So they said, what are these religious issues? Those obscure religious issues are going to create a barrier between Jews to be friendly with each other. Um, and it was nationalism. And they were getting more the idea that there's the Egyptian nation, but the Egyptian nation doesn't want us. So who do we belong to? We belong to the Jewish nation right nearby us. We're living in Egypt. Is the new settlement in the land of Israel. And more and more people became Zionists. And a lot of young people in Egypt were becoming Zionists. And including many of the Karaites, when the young Karaites in Cairo wanted to go to a Zionist youth movement, where did they go? They went to Bnei Akiva, the religious movement, because at least there they didn't desecrate the Sabbath, unlike the Shomer Atzair, who were left-wing socialists and could care less about the religious tradition. Um, so in 1954, later on, there was a whole issue where young Egyptian Jews were organized by Israeli intelligence to serve as sort of uh, spies or whatever. And they were caught by the Egyptians, and two of them were hung on the gallows. One of those two was a rabbinite Jew, but one of them was a young Karaite children's doctor in the Jewish uh, hospital in Alexandria uh, called Moshe Marzuk, and he was a Karaite. So there was a growing connection between the Karaites and the rabbinites on a social level, but according to the rabbis, they couldn't get married. So the rabbis of Egypt devoted a lot of thought, and they found different ways how to enable them to get married. Including, here's one example, which is interesting, not because of the way that he did it, but mostly because of the, um, of, of the way he justifies this. So the way that he did it, he said, look, the Karaites over time have become so non-Jewish in their religion and in the way that they do things. They really like a new religion, like Christians. At some point, if we say that a Jew who sins remains a Jew, and they said, some more, they remain a Jew. But at some time, people could so distance themselves from that, and they establish a new religion. So what we see today, say today that Christians, although they were originally 2,000 years ago Jewish, they're now Jewish? No, that's a different group. The same thing he says, I'm going to say halakhically, about the Karaites, and therefore what? They could have conversion. Once they have conversion, they're no more Mamzeri, or to be a Mamzeri, both parents have to be Jews. 
Only Jews could be a mamzer. <laughs> a, a goy, a non-Jew, can't be a mamzer. So if, a, they, so if we say the Karaites are non-Jews, they're not mamzerim. We avoided that problem. And then, however, he catches himself at a certain point. He says, just a minute. But why am I doing this? Of course, we want to be friends with the Karaites. The Karaites are going to be insulted about what I'm saying about them, right? He says, no, just a minute. Then he says, may the b'nei mikra, that's the second part of this page, not blame me for considering them Gentiles. For this was the sake, for, for the sake of the entire people. Letovat hakelala. I'm saying that they're Gentiles, but I'm doing this for the good of all. Now, who is this all? Meaning, both the Karaites and us, the Rabbinites. So, in some sense, we remain part of the same group, despite what I just said about them. To mend the torn fabric, le'achot et akiraim. Now, this is also a play on words because Karaite. If you write it in Hebrew, it's an aleph. Kuf, resh, aleph. Karaite. But a similar sounding root, kuf, resh, ayin, kara. Karaim means to tear, to rip. And at a certain point in history, when the rabbinite scholars and leaders were very, very angry against the Karaites, they, they, made, they made a catchy phrase, meaning what was torn, the fabric that was torn and rent asunder can never be mended again. And he says, this rabbi says, but no, I'm going to do, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm taking the torn fabric and mending it together. And to release them from their imprisonment, because as long as they were considered mamzerim, they couldn't marry other Jews, so that they may enter the community from now on without any problem. And then he makes an amazing statement. He says, you know, this is not the first time anybody has done that in history. If you look to the Talmudic discussion about King David, soon is going to be the festival of Shavuot. On the festival of Shavuot, we're going to read the story of Ruth. Okay, and Ruth was a Moabite woman who married into the tribe of Judah. Her husband was Boaz. And her great-grandchild or great-great-grandchild was King David. So he's originally part Moabite. However, it says in the Torah that a Moabite shall not enter the community of Israel. So how could somebody whose ancestry was Moabite become king of the Jewish people. And according to the Talmud, this issue came up at a certain time when people were discussing the young would-be King David. And a certain person said, this is all a midrash, right, filling in the gaps in the biblical story. This person, how could he be king? He really can't be Jewish at all. Look at who his great-grandmother was. And nobody knew what to do. Suddenly, somebody said, according to the Talmud, you know what? We have a tradition that says that a Moabite, it says in Hebrew, lo yavo moavi, a Moab person, cannot come into the Jewish people, but it says it in the masculine. So a Moavi, a masculine, a male Moabite can't join, 
But Mo'aviyah, Mo'avit, a female, it doesn't say in the Torah that that's a problem. And therefore, he was Moabite from the female side. That's okay. The Torah never forbid that. But in the Talmudic story, they have that as a heated debate at the, that time in the past. And uh, Rabbi Ohana says, you know what? That was not at all obvious that that was the common understanding of that verse. Somebody at that point in time adopted that interpretation in order to be inclusive vis-a-vis -vis King David, because otherwise we would lose King David. So they adopted that interpretation rather than what would be the more straightforward interpretation in Hebrew that whenever you say in a male language, in all advertisements and everything in Israel today where they have a differentiation in Hebrew between the masculine and the feminine, it says, we are using masculine language, but this is intended to include people of all genders. It's not discriminatory. Uh, but also normally in the Torah, we say B'nai Yisrael, the sons of Israel. Do we know the women aren't Jewish? No, B'not Jewish, no. It's inclusive because that's how they talk in Hebrew. You say male, but you mean everybody, basically. And uh, here they're making this special. No, we're only meaning men. Why are we doing that? He says, because we have a certain goal that we want to reach, and the interpretation follows the goal. Okay, so I call this uh, teleological halakha. We're making, we know what the goal has to be. And now we could see if we're clever enough to construct a halakhic argument that will get us to that place. Okay, it's like Waze. You know the GPS program? Okay, so you tell where you want to get and the program figures out how to get there. Now, the program can't transport you, teletransport you there. You have to tow with a car, according to the traffic rules, and get from here to there. But once you say where you want to get to, you now know, or the program now knows, how to do that. Similarly, within halakha, there's two things. One is, where do we want, where should we be getting according to the best values and goals of our tradition? And the second question is, having set out that, we can't just teletransport ourselves to there. We have to present a good argument that's a viable argument. Okay, what does viable mean? Like via, right? You can get, you can do it. It's a viable, it, you can sustain that argument to show how we could get from here to there according to the rules and traffic regulations and everything of halakha. So that, uh, Okay, so you could do this. And he says, that's what I'm doing, and that's what they did then. And what led me to this was that all the ways of Torah are ways of pleasantness. And all her paths are paths of peace. And so, too, he says, meaning God says in the mouth of the prophet, Yeshaya, peace, peace, shalom, shalom, to the near and to the far, says Hashem, and I will heal him. And the rabbis point out that who is first? Shalom, uh, no, I mistranslated here. To the near and to the far. Then Hebrew it says, you should, to the far and to the near. It's mistranslated here. Uh, and the far comes first. In other words, 
first we have to think in of drawing in the people who are far away and we understand to lose them. Okay, in a certain sense, the people who are already here, the people who regularly participate in activities of the Jewish community and they're committed and so on, that's not a big chokmah <laughs> to keep them. Okay, we have to be nice, we have to be interesting and so on, but here there, but there's so many people that are on the periphery that are getting lost, that are opting out, that are, that the, how do we bring them in? That has to be a consideration. And when we make halachic decisions and communal decisions, we should be thinking about that. Finally, the next and final example in this set of examples is from Rabbi Uziel. Um, Rabbi Uziel uh, was clearly the greatest Sephardic rabbi of the first half of the 20th century, but to my mind, he was one of the greatest rabbis in the entire Jewish world at that time, but most people never heard of him. So he was born in Jerusalem in 1880, where he grew up. Later, he became the rabbi of Tel Aviv. And later on in 1939, when the earlier chief Sephardic rabbi of the land of Israel, the mandatory Palestine, passed away, he became the chief Sephardic rabbi of Eretz Israel. And in 1948, he remained in that position and became now the first Sephardic rabbi of the new state of Israel. And he's a very interesting person with a lot of interesting writings and halachic decisions and so on. And here we can see two texts from him about how Jews should relate to non-Jews of the non-Jewish world. The first text is written and published in a rabbinic scholarly journal called Sinai Sinai in 1948 in the midst of Israel's war of independence when Israel was in direct life and death uh, combat with many, many Arab armed forces from within Palestine, from outside of Palestine. And when this was published, things weren't looking so good. But here is what he said about how Jews should relate to non-Jews in the new Jewish state. Neither we nor our descendants after us until the end of time would imagine to obligate the peoples of various religions who will live in our land and state to observe the commandments of the Torah. We will not discriminate against them in any way. And we also will not in any way harm their freedom of religion and their religious feelings or their holy sites that currently exist or that will be established in the future, meaning in the future if they want to build more mosques, more churches, we're not going to prevent that. This is not only because of the conditions that were imposed upon us by the Assembly of the United Nations. Now, by saying this, he is, by allusion to people who know about this, responding to what his peer, the chief Ashkenazic rabbi of Israel, who was at that time Rabbi Herzog, when he was asked about the question of the status of non-Jews in the Jewish state, he said, look, that's not a question that it really depends on our own internal considerations. 
But we got the state of Israel because of two things. First of all, the mandate, the mandatory system that granted the mandate to the British government to establish a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine. And therefore, according to the, to the League of Nations that granted that mandate, equality has to obtain between the citizens of such a state that will come to exist. B, the 1947 partition agreement of decision of the uh, United Nations granted us the right to establish a state in the land of Israel according to the conventions of the United Nations, which is that there has to be equality for all citizens. So since these were the conditions upon which the Goyim gave us the right to establish a state, we have to play by their rules, whatever our own rules might be, hinting that perhaps in a different universe, in a different context, our rules would not grant equality to non-Jews. But Rabbi Zil, who knew about this position, is intentionally opposing, and he said, this is not only, why do we have to agree, grant equality to the non-Jews? Not only because of the conditions that were imposed upon us by the Assembly of the United Nations, but rather, we will act thus out of our conviction and conscience that is a heritage from our forefathers, and because of the command of Torah that obligates us to extend love and respect, equal rights, and religious and national freedom to any nation and to any person who resides in our land in peace and loyalty. He says this is an internal Jewish issue, and from within our tradition, we have two sources and reasons to treat non-Jews equitably in the Jewish state, and the two reasons are, this. only the second one is the rules of Torah. Look, right, because this is it, and because of the command of Torah. So Torah is one reason, he says, but over and beyond that is our conviction and conscience. In Hebrew, that is a heritage from our forefathers. So even before we get to what Torah requires, we have a conscience and values that we received from our tradition, which is not a legal issue, but it's a value if issue. And all of these together provide grounds for the way we should be treating non-Jews in our new state. And he's writing this in the throes of the War of Liberation. Uh, and text number two in a book that he, of Jewish thought that he published, Hegionet Uziel, that he published, Mamash. It was the first volume went to print when he was sort of on his deathbed. The second volume appeared after he passed away in 1953-54. So in this work, he talks inter alia about how Jews should relate to the non-Jewish world and what type of interaction should be between the Jews and the other people of the world. And he says, it is a Torah obligation. Okay, he goes more at length, but it is a Torah obligation to seek peace and to pursue peace with every human being and to perform actions of love and compassion that draw all these to the quality of world peace that is the goal and aspiration of the people of Israel to call for peace. Love of human beings as human beings does not distinguish between one people and another. All 
are included in the commandment of love. Um, so here you see the attitude. Now, this time that he wrote it, he was the chief Sephardic rabbi of Israel. And he is writing this as what is the picture of the Jewish ideal of how to relate and be inclusive and in positive interaction with other peoples and human beings of the world. Of course, he's not in the least imagining that this is somehow at the price of a wholehearted identity with the Jewish tradition. He's saying that somebody who wholeheartedly identifies and follows and lives according to the tradition, this should be their attitude towards other human beings, including people who at a certain moment we are in direct contact with them. But when peace comes, that's not what we want to be in conflict, and we don't want to maintain a sense that the other people are second rate. And that should be our ideal. Um, so first of all, I'll sum up, and then if anybody has a question. Uh, so to sum up, what I've tried to bring are different texts from great Sephardic rabbis of modern times who relate to issues of significance for uh, the Jewish people and Jewish life. And the common denominator is that they seek to be inclusive and not exclusive uh, in various ways and to various groups. And by doing so, these kind of texts provide an important resource for Jews of whatever ethnic and cultural background to be able to relate to contemporary issues in um, better ways. Thank you very much. Seven or eight minutes for questions. Why don't we maybe take, if there are questions, take, take them all at once, so then you can just have a final response. I got a question. What do we do between the Swadik and the Ashkenaz in Israel? The conflict is not. That? What do the Israeli people do with the conflict between the Israeli Ashkenaz and the Swadik, the Swadik Jews in Israel? It's always a conflict from day one. What do we do about that? Anybody else? Okay. Well, that's the least of your worries. Where you do with 85% that are totally non-religious. I mean, uh, I'll start with the Jews, then I go with other religions. Let's no, take care no. of ourselves. 85% of the Jews in Israel are not religious. That's that's a different story. Well, that's okay. a different issue. Okay. okay. Any sure. other uh, questions? Okay, I guess we just got that one then. <laughs> okay, so first of all, I would begin with the fact that although, and despite what I said, that until a certain point in history, the majority of Jews were Oriental, but after that flipped, and increasingly in the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, there became a situation around 1939 in which about 85% of the Jews in the world were non-Sephardic, meaning they or their ancestors came from Europe from Christian Europe, right? Um, and also, these people, or at least some of them, especially in Eastern Europe and later in Germany under Hitler, uh, suffered greatly from anti-Semitism, and they also suffered in Eastern Europe
from a lack of opportunity to economically grow. There was a pale of settlement. The Jews, although they increased in number, were not allowed to live under the Russian Empire, except in this area, basically. And so there was a lot of people living in a place that had less and less Parnassa for them, and a lot of them decided to emigrate and come to the United States. And the people that stayed there were getting from bad to worse, and there was more pogroms and less economic, and some people said there's a Jewish problem, we have to solve the Jewish problem, let's set up our own state. And therefore, the majority of people who began the Zionist movement were from Eastern Europe. The truth is that if you examine the fact, most of the Jews, or certainly all of the rabbis, 99% of the rabbis in Sephardic countries supported Zionism. But they weren't the main actors and shakers in the Zionist movement. And the people that came to what was then Ottoman Palestine came from Eastern Europe. And they came with all of the prejudices that people in Eastern Europe had about people who looked sort of brownish. <laughs> and within, even within Soviet Russia, it's famous that the Russians in Soviet Russia looked down on the yellowish, brownish, eastern oriental peoples that were part of the Soviet Union. So nominally they were equal, but they were never gonna become secretary general of the Communist Party. Uh, left in extraordinary cases when they were killing, like Stalin was from Georgia. Um, okay, so the people from Europe, the Jews came to Palestine with all the prejudice from Eastern Europe and they had their own prejudices because people that were from Poland weren't so keen on their children marrying Jews from Hungary. You're gonna marry a Hungarian, they're crazy. And the people from Germany weren't so happy that their children were gonna marry Jews from Eastern Europe. Those Ostjuden, those terrible, schlubby, uncultured Ostjuden, so even within Europe, the Jews weren't so happy with each other. Now these same Jews come to Palestine. What do they see? A group of brownish people speaking Arabic. They may be Jewish, but they certainly aren't equal to us. Um, and then after 1948, many, many, many people from North Africa and the Middle East came to live in the state of Israel and the people who had been there earlier tended to see them as culturally inferior. And also a lot of them themselves weren't so happy about somebody came from Yemen. My daughter is gonna marry somebody from Morocco. What do those Moroccans know? So in the original years of the state of Israel, there was institutional prejudice by the people who are veterans towards the newcomers, who are mostly from these countries, and B, there was the whole prejudices that, it, now, over time, these prejudices um, it declined. Um, today, there's a lot of marriage between people from Jewish ethnic groups in Israel. Um, and um, 
But each time a new wave of people comes and they can't seem to fit in and other people don't know who they are, so first a whole group of people came from Soviet Russia in the early 1990s, a million people. And the people living in Israel, are you really Jewish? You don't know anything about Judaism. How could you be Jewish? And in fact, a lot of them halakhically, their fathers were Jewish, but their mothers not, because in Russia, that's what counted. Um, so what do we do about all these Russians? Then how can they be Jewish? And then the Russians looked around, they saw all these brownish, blackish looking people. Uh, how could they be Jewish? Okay, and then almost at the same time, a whole group of people from Ethiopia came who, if you, they're absolutely African in color and physiology. They're not, okay, they're different from a lot of the Afro-Americans here because they came from a different part of Africa. They didn't come from Western Africa. They came from uh, Eastern Africa and so people there are black, but they don't look exactly the same as most of the blacks that here, but okay. So the people, many people in Israel said, how could these people be Jewish? By the way, many of the Europeans said, how could Jews be white? They never saw a white Jew. They knew everybody, the Jews was black. Okay, so there was a big shock for them also. Uh, and by the way, the Ethiopians are in Israel because of Rabbi Vadia Yosef. Okay, the chief Sephardic rabbi in 1973, until 1973, the policy of the Israeli government was, well, scholars are not sure about whether the Jews in Ethiopia are really Jewish or not. Some say that they were originally Christians who then, like, they became, like, Protestant Christians, and they went according to the Bible, and they started observing different commandments that were written in the Bible, so they're really Christians that adopted Jewish behaviors. They're not really Jewish. Some scholars say otherwise, but, why should we make a controversial decision, said the Israeli authorities and government, when these people may not really be Jewish, and in addition they're black, so how will we integrate them? Let them be healthy and stay in Africa. And then Rabbi Vadia Yosef in 1973, somebody asked him, and he wrote a decision, uh, 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 and he said, what are you talking about? The Jews of Ethiopia were well known to the Jews in Egypt in the 16th century, which is true, because they came down the Nile. Uh, and there's, he, there's faith is a wonderful tissue foot, okay, from rabbis in Egypt, that some fellas said, look, I went to the marketplace and I bought a slave. Because there was slavery in the Ottoman Empire. I bought this black woman slave and a couple of weeks, she's in my house. She says to me, she's Jewish. And I don't know what to do about her. How do you treat a Jewish slave? And the rabbi, Rabbi David Ibn Abi Zimra, was a great rabbi uh, in the early 16th century. He said, man, she's Jewish. The Jews from Ethiopia, they're all descended from the tribe of Dan, the biblical tribe of Dan. They're all Jewish. The fact that they're black has nothing to do with it. And you thought that you were buying a slave. Really, you performed a wonderful mitzvah of ransoming a Jewish woman from slavery. And there's no such thing as a Jewish slave anymore. So normally, the 
community would have invested, each one would chip in something to ransom a Jew from slavery. You did this mitzvah all by yourself. She's a free woman. Okay, so the Rabbi Vadia said, obviously, the Jews of Ethiopia were known to the great rabbis 500 years ago in Egypt who determined that they're absolutely Jewish and has, Jewishness has nothing to do with the color of a person's skin. And so Rabbi said, so obviously, how could anybody today dare say that these great rabbis are mistaken? So the Jews, the people living in Ethiopia who are black and they claim that they're Jews, they are, yes, they're Jews and it's a mitzvah of the government of Israel and the Jewish agency and whatever to do whatever it takes to bring them here, which is what happened, because now the government of Israel is embarrassed. We should be more from than the rabbi. The chief rabbi is telling us that they're Jewish, and we say we're not so sure. And Israel invested millions and mi hundreds of millions in great operations and sent secret commandos by air and by sea to bring people from Ethiopia in several operations, and now they're all in Israel. And it's true, there's also a lot of discrimination against them. But things are much better now than they were 20 years ago. And you, first of all, people are more aware of this. People are more ashamed of this discrimination. And um, ultimately, one good thing that Israel has going for it compared to some other countries in the world where there's also racial issues is that Israel has the idea that there's a substrate and we're all Jewish. This guy is brown, he's Jewish. This guy is black, he's Jewish. This guy is pinkish, he's Jewish. This woman is blondish, she's Jewish. And we're all Jewish, and therefore we have to do work to do, but we, there's really, people are ashamed ultimately to discriminate on the basis of race. Uh, and uh, so things weren't so good and there's a lot of work to be done. There's also a lot of work to be done to reclaim the Sephardic tradition, the Ethiopian tradition, this, and to integrate it into the rest of Israeli Jewish culture. Thank you so much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.